that which is evaluated gets done. If we're not evaluating creativity, then it's not going to get done. And I know we can't do it as precisely as achievement. We can't say 87.5 percentile, but there are examples, rating scales and things. There are also uh, other byproducts that can allow us to evaluate it. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Cindy Burnett. And my name is Dr. Matthew Woward. This is the Fueling Creativity and Education podcast. On this show, we'll be talking about creativity topics and how they apply to the field of education. We'll be speaking with scholars, educators, and resident experts about their work, challenges they face, and digging deeper into new and varying perspectives of creativity. All with the goal to help fuel a more rich and informed discussion that provides teachers and parents with knowledge they can use at home or in the classroom. So let's begin. Welcome to another episode of the Fueling Creativity in Education podcast. Now, as you know, the primary goal of this show is bridging the gap between research and practice. And today we are joined by one of the most internationally renowned creativity experts who has done exactly that. Dr. Joseph Renzulli is a leader and pioneer in gifted education and applying the pedagogy of gifted education teaching strategies to all students. The American Psychological Association named Joe among the top 25 most influential psychologists in the world. Dr. Renzulli received the Harold McGure Jr. Award for Innovation in Education, considered by many to be the Nobel for educators, and was a consultant to the White House Task Force on Education of the Gifted and Talented. Joseph Renzulli is a professor emeritus of educational psychology at the University of Connecticut, where he served as director of the National Research Center on Gifted and Talented. His research has focused on the identification and development of creativity and giftedness in young people and on organizational models and curricular strategies for total school improvement, one being the school-wide enrichment model, which he developed with Dr. Sally Reese, another guest on our show. Dr. Renzulli, it is an absolute honor to have you on our show today. Thank you so much for giving up your time. Honor and a pleasure for me to be here. So, Dr. Renzulli, we would love to start off with your view on the relationship between giftedness and creativity. A number of years ago, um, I wrote an article called What Makes Giftedness Reexamining a Definition, popularly known today as the Three Ring Conception of Giftedness. And it's a Venn diagram with three interacting circles. And um, one of them is above average, but not necessarily superior ability in a particular topic or subject. Uh, the second is creativity. And the third is what I call task commitment. And think of that as a refined or focused form of motivation. Uh, motivation is you're motivated to be a good teacher or parent or swimmer. Uh, task commitment is working on something very, very specific within whatever area you have an interest in. You can't separate those things in the development of what I call creative, productive giftedness. Those are the kinds of things that cause people that we know to become famous people or children who do an outstanding project and win a science award or get a poem published. It's those three things working together. And um, the article, I say with no amount of, of humility, uh, is the most widely cited article in the field of gifted education. And uh, I believe that it's really more common sense. It's what most people experience in their own work and in their own lifetime. They know that the energy, the task of 
have to be there. They know that they have to come up with ideas that are different from other people's ideas. And obviously, they have to know a little bit about the area that they're working in. Joe, there was something you said in there. You, you referenced famous people. And our first interaction was me kind of putting a last-minute interview together for uh, Exploring the Imbalance. I don't know if, if you remember that, but, you know, you gave some great sound bites in that film. We was talking about why we should care more about gifted education in society. And we, you know, we, we start to run down a list, you know, when we're talking about film, famous people in film, we, we, you know, we typically go to one person, Steven Spielberg, or we list Bill Gates. And what you reference in that is, is we as a society are typically referencing the same people. And you, you kind of pose this question of, of what if there was a hundred Bill Gates or a hundred Steven Spielbergs, and then you really understand the true potential of human creativity. And so my question is, what are the greatest barriers for us increasing the number of people that are reaching that level of creativity within their field? I think that one of the things is that I make a distinction between what I call lesson learning giftedness and creative productive giftedness. And fortunately or unfortunately, you have to determine for yourself, too many gifted programs, especially uh, advanced placement courses, honors courses, uh, focus on young people learning more material faster. So that's what I call, again, lesson learning giftedness. And I believe that if we're going to create more people who are going to make important contributions to society, then we also have to shift our emphasis or at least be more equal in our emphasis on what I call creative productive giftedness. And that means that even in an advanced placement course, that somewhere in that course, a capstone project, they've become more popular, things like uh, genius space and all of that, where kids are not just asked to learn something, but to do something, apply what they've learned. We know famous people, not because of their SAT scores, not because of their rank in class, or even what famous institution they graduated from. We know them because they created something that hopefully will make the world a better place. And I believe that this contributes in any country, in any state, district, whatever, to the economy, to the culture, to the societal uh, benefits. And uh, part of my work does focus on using your creative, productive giftedness to improve social capital. So how can we bring more of that creative giftedness into the classroom? Always a big challenge because unfortunately today, we've got a couple of guns at our heads in schools. And one of those guns is basically the common core state standards and every name they give to it, you know, basic competencies and all of that. Uh, And the second is the way that we evaluate schools uh, on mainly standardized achievement tests. If you look at uh, state report cards where they actually grade schools A, B, C, D, F on how good they are, Uh, The thing that always leads the list is achievement test scores. And they have a lot of other things that they look at, but they're all things that basically contribute. For example, something like the the number of years of teaching experience of a school faculty, you know, that contributes to achievement test scores. 
And I, I would never argue against the, the importance of improving uh, school achievement. But at the same time, we often do that at the expense of things that re, uh, relate to what, again, I call creative, productive giftedness. I've had many a principal say, well, that enrichment stuff really sounds important, but my goal is to get the scores up. And so uh, the, the, the testing companies have made fortunes on these tests, and oftentimes um, all teachers get are averages. These are the scores for all the fourth graders in X, Y, or Z school. We don't know what little Susie or, or uh, Johnny is doing in, as an individual. And so, you know, I had a, a good friend who was formerly president of the University of Connecticut, and he had a wonderful expression, that which is evaluated gets done. If we're not evaluating creativity, then it's not going to get done. And I know we can't do it as precisely as achievement. We can't say 87.5 percentile, but there are examples, rating scales and things. There are also uh, other byproducts that can allow us to evaluate it. How many children entered the National History Day competition? How many children uh, produced and, and uh, presented a play or a musical performance? How many children uh, did a film or submitted a uh, article to a journal that publishes children's work? And these are the kinds of things that are payoffs in the real world uh, because they make a difference from just simply learning more material faster. What, what you just said there actually strikes me as something relatively simple to do in some ways. Because if there is a, an administrator listening right now or there's a principal, you know, quantify how many shows you produce. Look at your extracurricular activities. Uh, one of the a statewide innovation challenge. How many submissions were there? Did you receive any awards? A absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and get it get it front facing, right? Like, you know, go and show the community and the district that you take as much pride in all of these additional things that your students have done, as well as where your score score is perhaps ranked on the achievement test. And that that seems something we can do. And in a lot of ways, I think it's a sort of a political problem, again, that the leading political influence being test scores. But one of the things I recommend, for example, the school districts is decorate the Board of Education room with things that young people have done. Uh, have young people come in and talk for five or 10 minutes about a project that they worked on so that they understand that these are the kinds of things that are equally more important, in my, in my opinion, to just simply what were the scores of our fourth graders this year? I think that's a wonderful example. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about the Renzulli Learning System. And for those of you listening who aren't familiar with this, it's an interactive online system that provides students with a personalized learning environment, allowing teachers to easily differentiate instruction to increase engagement and achieve higher academic performance. So you get that engagement piece and that higher academic performance piece. So can you talk to us a bit about how this learning system works how did you develop it? And how has it benefited the thousands of educators who have used it? Well, um, one of the things that uh, Sally and I realized a number of years ago was that you can't do the kind of teaching that we advocate without easy access to technology. 
And so um, about 10 or so years ago, I don't actually remember when we started it, uh, we started meeting with some tech people. And one of the things that I've done over the years is develop several different instruments that look at student strengths, what I call assessment for learning rather than of learning. And one that always leaves the list by a hundred miles is interests. And so I developed a series of instruments called interestalizers, and I have them from diapers to doctorate. If you apply to my doctoral program, I'm going to send you an adult interestalizer because I want to know where you're coming from. And we have them for very young children and everything in between. And we even have some separate area ones like uh, Sally Reese developed one in, in reading. Let's ask children what they want to read, and you'll get better reading scores. And she has research to prove that. Another one has to do with learning styles, asking young people the way that they learn best. And uh, another one is uh, expression styles, which is becoming more and more important to me as time goes on. If I can find out that a child doesn't want to write poetry, but would love to do uh, cartoons, for example, or do a mime, or do uh, something that relates to the, the, their way of expressing himself or herself. And when we look at, again, famous people, they've always expressed themselves in a certain way. And so um, right now I'm working with a couple of my colleagues on a, another uh, addition to the what we call the profiler in Renzulli Learning, and that has to do with executive function skills. And it's called My Way, I believe. Uh, so this information is all recorded by students right at their computer keyboard. They answer those questions, and out the other end of the printer comes a profile that, that describes there's three major interests, there are three major learning styles, etc. The real beauty of the program is this search engine that scans through probably 50,000 different resources, and they're all high engagement resources. It's not just text online or, heaven forbid, worksheets online. And, uh, for example, a youngster that's interested in ancient Egypt can build their own pyramid virtually or a, a thing called a shadoof that raises water from one level to the other. They can dissect and preserve their own mummy. And that's sent to the student based on their profile. Teachers can also use it. If a teacher is teaching a unit, they can put ancient Egypt into the search engine, the grade level of the children, even the ability level if they're working with children of different ability groups. And it will help the teacher find these quickly and easily. And uh, I believe that in all the work that my work's always been very, practical or pragmatic. I, I think an idea is not worth a dime unless you can convert it into something that's easy for teachers to use. And uh, some of the workshops that I've been to over the years are so complicated that it, it, it causes teachers to have brain fog rather than a skill that they can use tomorrow. And uh, actually, Sally and I wanted to give this away free uh, from the University of Connecticut, but their system is for faculty productivity to be converted into a commercial product. And so, but I, I think that um, it is one of the most important things because, again, you can't do the kind of teaching that we're recommending, which is at the opposite end of 
prescriptive didactic over to the creative investigative end on the uh, right-hand end of the continuum. You can't do that kind of teaching without letting the machine do the heavy lifting for you. I mean, just a sidebar, we, we, we've spoken a lot, Joe, about this idea of uh, uh, co-bots, collaborative bots, and how the future creative per se is going to have to be better at collaborating with, with machines and artificial intelligence. And so just as a sidebar, I see a connection with the future creative teacher getting better at kind of like working with some of these algorithms that, that can assist us um, when it comes to identifying specialized interests. In training teachers is the key to so much of this. And of course, there has to be some administrative support for it. But I've developed a thing which is called the creative idea generator. And it works like this. I get groups of teachers together, usually by grade level and or subject area. And I ask them to list some of the things that they consider to be mainly memory oriented in their work. Then I divide them into groups. Let's just take something that every American child learns three times during school, uh, maybe more, uh, times tables and uh, the names of the U.S. states and capitals, for example. And I ask them to brainstorm some ways that can make this more engaging and more interesting for young people. And one of the things that I firmly believe is that if we don't have a vehicle for getting teachers themselves to be a little bit more creative in their work, they're never going to move away again. The, the common core and the, and the, uh, the gun at your head on uh, test scores is always going to be that which evaluates gets done. So for example, um, I've done this in a number of workshops and I train teachers and how to do it. And one of the workshops uh, on uh, states and capitals, and they pick the topic. They, I don't tell them the topic, they pick it. Uh, I got over the next year or so, so many unusually creative ideas for uh, just, uh, uh, for example, uh, this, this, this was a workshop in Florida where they developed a debate for a better location for the, the uh, capital of the state, Tallahassee, way out of the way in the north northern part of the state where the population is very slim. And, and some kids argued for Miami because that's where the major population is. Others argued for Orlando because that's where Disney World is and that's where more people go. And uh, that some kids developed a matching game where um, it was 10 items per, per a game, and they list 10 states, and then 10 things that were e unique about that state. And so kids had to do a lot of research to find out, for example, that the Frisbee was invented in Connecticut by some workers at a plant that made ice cream. They were sailing the tops of the ice cream containers during their lunch hour. And um, kids had so much fun uh, doing this. Um, there were many, many other very creative ideas. And then, of course, the next step is to say, OK, you want to make learning more fun. I always... To me, if you know my three E's, enjoyment, which leads to engagement, which leads to enthusiasm for learning. Well, anything that children find fun triggers 
process, which we all do in our our own lives. I'm a bread baker. And basically, you know, I follow the recipe and then I add to it and try a little of this and a little of that. And some are great failures, but others turn out to be really good. And so uh, I think that these are the kinds of things that have almost been squeezed out of schools because of those two guns that are pointing at our head. And we've got to give teachers a little bit of room in their own classrooms to do things uh, like those, for example, on the states and capitals. On the the, uh, times tables ones, there were some really remarkable ideas that came in. Just a very simple one. Teacher would ask, how much is six times four? And she'd write 24 on the blackboard. Then she asked them, how many different ways you can make 24? And the kids that were really slow in math said, well, 23 plus one is 24. But then the kids, some kids came up with using multiplication and division in the same one, the more advanced kids. Some kids that knew algebra came up with remarkable ways to come up with 24. And we talk today a lot about differentiation and personalization of uh, instruction. That's an activity that I could do with kids that are struggling learners, and I could do it with the kids with the highest math scores in the country. And and keeping with the theme of differentiation, you know, um, and, and you've spoken about the guns to the head, could you talk a little bit about the concept of curriculum compacting just, just because, you know, looking at strategies that uh, teachers can look at applying when they feel that their creativity is restricted a little bit? Curriculum compacting is something that uh, I came upon when I started teaching, which is in 1958. At that time, uh, post-World War II and everything, and uh, heterogeneous classrooms were the, the name of the game. No s- slow, medium, advanced classes. And so I had some children in my math class. I was a math and science teacher. Some kids in my math class who couldn't add. And I had some kids that could have done calculus. And so I started what I called was a game. And the game went like this. You know how on a a math worksheet, the problems get harder as you go down the page? You did the last row. You brought it up to my desk. If they were, and I did this later on for homework, but mostly for seat work. If you got everything in the last row correct, you were through with your math for the day. Now, that presented problem number two. And that is, okay, what do I do with those kids? And so that's when I started looking for enrichment activities in math that kids could have more fun with. And so they wanted to get that last row so they would be able to go and do a fun activity. And I actually also did it in science as well. And so that eventually evolved into, and we've done a great deal of research, on taking out material from the curriculum that either young people already know or can learn more quickly and easily than others and getting rid of that and replacing it with something that reflects the three E's. And you have a book on this topic. Yeah, we've written a lot and we've done a lot of research on it. And uh, in fact, I think Sally wrote an article once with a really creative title, Why Not Let 
Albright children start school in February <laughs> because the the fact of the matter is that most of the first part of the year, at least in the reading and math basic skill areas, you know, is just a repeat of what they already know. And, and I think that just working on a short piece, I, I don't know if it's in my short stuff yet or not, to takes off on NCLB, No Child Left Behind, and the title is No Child Left Bored. That's what causes children to be bored. Therefore, they lose good work habits. They lose the enthusiasm for finding out new material on their own. And uh, it, it, again, it's really hard to change our profession because of the the test scores and the um, common core standards that seem to drive everything. But I think I think what's important though, it, it it's hard, it's a challenge, it's something that everyone's acknowledged, but there there are small things that we can do as educators. And I think from an administrative perspective, I think there's some stuff that, that you've brought into this discussion, Joe, that administrators can think about. How might I create an environment that kind of promotes this? What might I do to try and promote this type of creativity in the community? But I think if, if you're a teacher listening right now, we'll share some of the resources um, that, that Joe's referencing for you to think about how you might be able to actually apply that in your classroom. It's a great time. It's the summer months and, and you can kind of like have a go at starting small for the, uh, the next academic year. I would also love to know, Joe, what you would recommend for parents who are listening. So we have a lot of parents who listen to our podcast who are interested in having in bringing creativity into their home life with their children. So what would you recommend if you have a parent at home who has a a child that accelerates with their learning, um, shows creative production and wants to, is motivated to learn? What would you recommend for them? One of the things I would recommend is to look around for any opportunity where some of this is going on outside of school. Uh, I think that uh, different kinds of camps and clubs focus on these kinds of things. There's a nature camp for here, for example, here in Mystic that we're going to get our four-year-old granddaughter into this summer because she's very, she's always looking at butterflies and looking at plants and things like that. And so if it were something more scientific or or mechanical or some other area dramatic, we would look for something like that. I think that, uh, Parents can should do everything possible to influence the schools, but the schools are hard to influence. And I think that one of the things that you should do for people that are looking at this podcast is say, please ask your principal, your director of curriculum, your superintendent of schools to look at this podcast because a lot of teachers, I think, would, when I talk about the three E's, I talk about it as as appropriate for teachers as it is for students. But a lot of teachers just feel like, no, you know, I've had principals say to teachers, we're not doing that stuff here. We got we got to get our scores up. We, we're lower than the next town over as far as our achievement scores go. You know, I, I'm going to keep saying this again and again, and I'm sorry if there are people listening now that are getting bored of it. But I, I, I think particularly in response to COVID, 
we as educators demonstrate the tremendous creativity of, of the teaching profession. And I, I do hope that as we come back after COVID and things look like they're beginning to normalize and maybe it will continue to do so, we can hope, is that we don't lose that. And, you know, we keep talking about the value and importance of creativity. That's within the entire school system, including the educators, because, you know, Cindy and I have had guests and one of the, 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 the things that's regularly coming up, Joe, is this idea of modeling creative behavior. And if teachers can model creative behavior within their profession, within their instructional, instructional activities, then they're actually getting a better sense of creativity and all of the kind of attributes and characteristics and skills associated with it. And therefore, they're, they're going to model it and they're probably more comfortable in promoting it in the classroom as well. Yes, uh, <clears throat> let me give you a, a quick personal and recent example. Uh, yesterday, we had our uh, almost four granddaughter uh, with us, um, and uh, we went down to the beach and we dug up some seashells. Um, and then we brought them back and washed them all off. And uh, she has this acrylic set of paint. We started painting the seashells she did we were all painted but she did and there was a, a little ceramic turtle that my wife bought in the store for a dollar sitting there and she said grammy can we paint the turtle and we brought the turtle over and next thing you know so that again is her choice i mean she she loved painting the shells and um, be glad to send you a handful. <laughs> but uh, she then just got really excited about painting the turtle. And I, I do think that um, even parents in their own way need to understand the difference between lesson learning help and creative productive help, giving children a chance. And then uh we said, what do you want to do with the turtle? And she said, I want to put it in my fairy garden, which she has designed herself out by our swimming pool. She's got all little knickknacks and little toys in there. And so the turtle now sits proudly in the middle of the fairy garden. And I, I think that that's the way that we can get these kinds of things promoted a little bit by just letting parents know that those are things that can easily be done. And we had such a talk about the three E's. Sally and I enjoyed every minute of that activity. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that beautiful story. All right, so we're running out of time and I have we have probably 50 more questions to ask. So I'm going to start with the next one. Um, what do you think is the future of gifted education? And where do you think we need to focus our energy? First of all, I'm going to give you one of my fears. And that fear is that because of the underrepresentation of low-income students in gifted education programs, we are facing a crisis because uh, we've had parents protesting in New York from low-income groups, and we've had parents from kids that are at the prestigious schools, uh, Stuyvesant and, and Bronx Science, protesting equally. We we don't want kids in here that are, you know not the same as our kids, meaning middle-class white and Asian kids. And there's a thing in law <clears throat> which is called the drowning man analogy. And um, Joe and Matt and Cindy are walking along uh, by the river one day, and there's a drowning person out there. 
And I say, mm, I'm not such a good swimmer. I'm not jumping in. And Matt says, yeah, you know, I'm, I don't know how to swim at all. But Cindy jumps in and she dives out and she swims out and she grabs the drowning man. And on the way back, unfortunately, the man struggles loose and drowns. Who goes to court, Joe or Matt, who refused to help, or Cindy, who helped but didn't quite get the job done the way it should have been done? Who do they sue? I, I, I'm sadly going to sue Sydney, yeah. Yeah. And, and so <clears throat> what's happening? And we get called now, as witnesses. We get called as witnesses and, and yeah. probably, yeah. Yeah. Well, the, what's happening in schools is that superintendents are saying, you know, we can't deal with this. So we're going to look at New York City, get rid of the gifted program, and we're going to differentiate for all students. And, and sometimes all this means is that slower kids will get more worksheets and brighter kids will get two ex, extra books to read. And it, it, I, I believe that unless we can do something to so, show that we've got some suggestions that will improve, again, learning for all kids with a focus on creative, productive, as well as lesson learning giftedness, we might be in the same position as the drowning man analogy. I'd rather get rid of it so I don't have the problem than trying to solve the problem that's going to satisfy both groups. And by the way, that's one of the reasons that Sally and I developed the school-wide enrichment model. Many people have said, well, couldn't, shouldn't all kids want to do this? And we said, yeah, that's great. You know, it's all done in the gifted program. And other kids, you know, I had one one teacher uh, who said, I'm sure glad that, that that my child's in the gifted program at school because when she comes home with these great ideas and things that they did, I do them with my whole class. And so should, all kids should have these opportunities. And I'm not saying all kids are gifted or not gifted. What I'm saying is that we have an opportunity gap, and that is something that we need to cover. Uh, and that will also, I think, help us with the achievement gap. Joe, you've list, you've got a lot of accomplishments. One of, but one of the the greatest accomplishments that I've I've seen that you're most proud about is your work in professional development with teachers. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the Confitute program at the University of Connecticut, which is coming up in the month of July. It's typically held in the month of July, um, particularly from the perspective of the educators listening that are hungry and want to do more around the things that we're talking about. Well, constitute, by the way, it's a made-up word. It's a combination of a conference and an institute with a lot of fraternity in the middle. And uh, unfortunately, this year, we're going to have to do it virtually because I think that a group of really excited teachers being together for a week, uh, the kinds of energy that evolves from that uh, is, is just something that's always amazed me. But uh, I think that one of the things about Confortude is that the focus is on practical applications of our work. We don't have professors lecturing from behind a podium. Uh, and it's um, many of the people that teach at Confortude are still working classroom teachers. I mean, we do have people that give keynotes and things like that. But I'm constantly... Um, encouraging the Confortute faculty staff to 
practice what we're preaching right in their confitute sessions. And so all kinds of great things are done that are more hands-on. I believe that the only value of a theory is if it is also followed by very, very practical implementation activities. And so I think that's one of the reasons why it's been uh, as successful. Uh, We've had people that have come back many, many times over the years and always say they come home with something new. And uh, uh, I'm very proud of that because uh, we can talk about all of these ideas, but getting them into the tool bag of teachers is is a much more difficult thing to do. Dr. Ranzuli, we end every show with three tips that you would provide to educators to bring creativity into the classroom. Well, I think that one of the first tips that I recommend that is as practical as I can get is that working with the school librarian, a separate section of the library should be set up with things that I call how-to books. And these are books that give young people the investigative and creative skills for tackling a problem just like adults, but more at perhaps a more junior level. And so, for example, a how-to book on uh, how to, to uh, design and build or, or write a puppet show and how to make puppets is something that there's a how-to book just about everything. Uh, Cookbooks are how-to books, by the way. They should be very, very practical. And step one, step two, after the ingredients are listed in the cookbook, what's over on the right next page, uh, mix this with that and put it in a blender or whatever. And so I think that that's one of the, the most important practical things that we can do. The second is, again, trying to get in touch with some basic ideas. One of the reasons that I make the short stuff, which I'm going to send to you so easily available, is that they are basic ideas that are quickly read. And then if people want to follow up, they can find more advanced information. But I do believe that... um, Long lectures and long articles uh, can only contribute to more boredom uh, to teachers. <laughs> and, you know, yet another uh, workshop there uh, uh, on this, that, or the other thing is not going to do it. So I do think that that's a, a second thing that, that I would strongly recommend. And the third thing I would strongly recommend is that teachers try to ask some open-ended questions every single day. As a matter of fact, uh, I have a thing, and if I'll, I'll make a note of this. If I can find it, I'll send it to you as well. And it's just a list of verbs. And basically, some verbs that deal with just simply finding information. Some are a little bit more advanced. The middle level, think of those as more along the lines of thinking skills. The third set are more creative and just to have teachers check check themselves how many of the verbs from column one column two and column three have you used and and one of the things i ask teachers to do at the end of every topic or unit of study or sometimes even lesson what's an open-ended question that they can ask children that doesn't have a single 
predetermined correct answer. Well, Dr. Renzulli, thank you so much for joining us today. If you're interested in his work, we encourage you to check out the links in the comments and to follow him on LinkedIn. We'll send a link for that as well. So that concludes this episode of the Fueling Creativity and Education podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about this episode or past or future episodes, please reach out to us at questions at fuelingcreativitypodcast.com. My name is Dr. Cindy Burnett. And my name is Dr. Matthew Werwood. This podcast was produced by Creativity and Education and in partnership with dadsforcreativity.com. Our editor is Sina Yousafzadeh.